In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. If you go back and read Ronald Reagan's memoirs, I think it was around 1986-87, that he had been told by the Pentagon that the United States had a space lift capacity at that time of 300 people. In other words, it could move 300 people in space at that time. Well, if you look at the state of the space shuttle fleet at that time, we were at best capable of moving 40. Either Reagan is letting something out that he shouldn't have let out and telling us the truth, or he's letting out a bit of disinformation to make Soviet Russia, Communist China, think twice. One of the two. Now, I happen to think he probably was letting out something genuine. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, 
flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS-60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60EVO link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60EVO. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Joseph Farrell stays with us this hour, a recognized scholar, PhD in philosophy from the University of Oxford, and uh, the author of some 37 books, including Hidden Finance, Covert Wars, and Breakaway Civilizations, The Third Way. Uh, And again, the website is GizaDeathStar.com, and uh, you can read his uh, blogs there. Also, his YouTube channel, News and Views from the Nefarium. Joseph, let's talk UFO disclosure. June 1st came and went. No big announcement was forthcoming from the Pentagon. I sort of assumed that would be the case. My expectations were very low. How about you? What's going on with disclosure? What is this all about? My, I'm with you. You know, my expectations are rather low. Uh, but that said, if you look at the space stories in the last few years, it appears to me that they've been trying to carefully prepare narratives for people uh we had you know we've had the asteroid threat narrative back uh, during the chelyabinsk meteor incident and then all of a sudden that morphed over the next couple of years into well we've got to go out and explore all these asteroids and mine all these asteroids and that to me was a huge clue because this was occurring a few years after the financial meltdown of 2008 and the bailouts and during that period, we were told that the, the amount of derivatives sloshing around in the world financial system was somewhere between 14 and 17 quadrillion dollars, which is several times the gross domestic product of the entire planet. So all of a sudden, we start hearing about asteroid mining, and all of a sudden, we find our uh, asteroids out there whose uh, mineral worth has been calculated to be, oh, magically, somewhere between 14 and 17 quadrillion dollars. Well, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. And this is a nice, convenient way, you know, to wipe out all that bad paper on the books. Uh, so that's the other thing. And now, you know, we're, we're hearing about ETs, and supposedly the Pentagon is releasing all of these videos, and the New York Times is writing stories about it, and people are getting all excited and the fact of the matter is, this is not the first time the New York Times or the Washington Post have written about UFOs. They've written about them for, for decades. Uh, so I suspect we're either in for a big nothing burger or they're going to use this uh, upcoming quote-unquote disclosure event 
to prep some sort of narrative regarding space, and that's that's my that's my bet. I'm not familiar. Uh, I've never met or was ever that familiar with Mark McClandlish, the UFO researcher, and um, you noted his passing recently. Tell me a little. Tell us a little bit about who Mark was and the unusual circumstances of his death. Well, Mark was one of the speakers uh, at the 2014 uh, Secret Space Program uh, conference in San Mateo, California, along with me and uh, Richard Dolan, Catherine Fitz, and, and some other people. And he had been involved kind of, I, I don't want to say as kind of a mainstream uh, ufology researcher, but he, his forte was that he was a mechanical uh, artist. In other words, he his specialty was being able to draw three-dimensional representations of aircraft and things like this from blueprints or what have you. So he was in pretty high demand for, as an illustrator for magazines like Popular Aviation or Popular Mechanics and so on and so forth. And he got interested in UFOs and came out with a series of drawings on what was called the Alien Reconstruction Vehicle or the Alien Recovery Vehicle in some instances and uh, had delved into this uh, story that had been floating around in ufology for some time and did technical drawings of, of this craft based on what people had told him. And he presented this at the conference, and he and I had been in touch kind of off and on after that conference. Very nice man. Uh, he was uh, very well-spoken and courteous man, not the kind of individual that, you know, in my short acquaintance with him, I would ever have assumed would blow his brains out with a shotgun, which is what's the story. Uh, he died just this last April, apparently, of, of self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head. And I, I'm just not buying the story, Richard, um, because almost immediately... Uh, a friend, uh, another speaker at that conference, Robert Morningstar, uh, delved into this story a little bit more and discovered that it's being investigated at the federal level because apparently Mr. McCandlish was scheduled to testify to some congressional inquiry. Now, I don't know if, the, if it was an official committee, but he was apparently scheduled to testify for some sort of congressional investigation and then all of a sudden turns up dead. And the thing that I find very unusual about this, Richard, is the parallel with George DeMorenschild, who was one of the people of interest to the, to the Senate and House committees on assassinations back in the 70s regarding the JFK assassination. DeMorenschild was scheduled to testify, and a few days before his, his testimony, he himself shows up dead, again, allegedly a suicide by shotgun to the head and you know the parallel here is just a little too much for me to swallow number one it would be very difficult for anyone to commit suicide by using a shotgun to their head you know you somehow have to pull the trigger so uh, it, it's it's just not making sense to me i'm not buying the narrative that this was uh, a suicide because he just mr mccandlish just did not strike me as the kind of individual that would do that and what was the nature of this Senate hearing? That I don't know. Uh, I'm simply conveying to you what Mor Mr. Morningstar has reported. And as far as I know, it was UFO-related, but 
there are no further details other than that. So and, I don't and know. For the, but and the uh, the ARV story. Uh, can you, you tell us a little bit about that? The alien recovery vehicle. What is that story? This is a story that that the the alien recovery vehicle was a vehicle supposedly constructed, reverse engineered on the basis of supposed or alleged UFO crashes. So the alien reconstruction vehicle is actually, from top to bottom, a human-engineered vehicle. It was supposedly done out in California. I forget exactly where, but it's one of those uh, big installations down in Southern California around Helmdale and so on where they have all the skunk works. But uh, he was told about this story and given enough details that he was able to draw, and you can you can go on uh, on the blog that I wrote on my website about his death and see some of his work. It's it's very high quality work, you know, in terms of artistic representation. But he delved into it and and drew the interior of this vehicle that had allegedly been reverse engineered from UFOs. One of the things I found very interesting about it was that some of the physics he described in his presentations at San Mateo were very similar in their concept to some of the things that I believe were connected to the Nazi bell. Uh, and that, you know, that to me only kind of ratcheted up the, uh, the possibility that what he was describing as the alien reconstruction vehicle was, was actually something that they had tried or experimented with. So you're dealing with somebody, you know, he was not he was not really all that interested in ETs or not ETs or so on. He was simply trying to present the stories of the technology that he heard about. Uh, so that gives his work kind of a unique little niche in, in ufology. Right, right. So when this, you know, they, this document came out, it was um, a scientist who wrote... Uh, basically some notes after a meeting he had with the former, I believe it was the uh, former uh, intelligence chief with the Joint Chiefs of Staff who said he he um, had uncovered this um, the secret program, mm-hmm. uh, tried to get read in under the program, was denied even though he was the uh, head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs. and But he was told um, in a secret meeting that, uh, yes, uh, some agency had recovered UFO uh, technology, uh, but they weren't having much success in back engineering it. So it sounds like McClandlish was maybe uncovered something to suggest that, oh, we, oh yes, they have. They've had a great deal of success. We have this technology now, and, and maybe, you know, that might explain – um, these the Tic Tac uh, UFO videos, uh, even though the the Pentagon is saying they're not ours, they're not ours. Well, maybe that well, kind yeah, of blows I'm, that that out of the water. Well, the the Tic Tac videos, you know, and and all of this stuff. I, you know, you can go look up patents online for triangular shaped vehicles that use some form of field propulsion. What bothers me about all of this is not so much that the technology apparently does exist. What bothers me is the constant rush to attribute it to E.T. And what's interesting about Mr. McCandlish was he was never uh, never one to, to 
doubt the stories that he was being told, but his his real attitude was the nuts and bolts of it. He wanted to know about the technology, what made it work, what was the thinking behind it, and so on and so forth. And what's really very interesting about that alien reconstruction vehicle, at least from my perspective, is that there's nothing about it that tells me or compels me to go to E.T. as an explanation for it. So in other words, the the idea that this was a vehicle reconstructed on the basis of what they had they had recovered from crashed and recovered UF vehicle UFO vehicles um, that to me could be a cover story for what they're really up to. In other words, that this might be wholly a human product. I don't know, but uh, I, I'm increasingly skeptical, Richard, about um, the ET narrative, particularly from governments that have been willing to lie to our faces about, you know, masks and vaccines and so on and so forth. So, um, I think I think his his testimony might have perhaps endangered that narrative to some extent. I don't know. You know, I'm just speculating here. Are you thinking that the the technology exists and that that these are made in the good old USA, or are, did this technology find its way into the hands of our adversaries, Russia, China? Well, I think a lot of it, I, I go back to what I've been writing about in my Nazi series of books. I wrote a book uh, a few years ago that ufology loves to ignore. I, I, it's called Roswell and the Reich, and it's about the Roswell incident. And my my take, Richard, is that I think we're looking at a lot of human technology that has been utilized in a kind of psychological warfare, uh, false flag, prep the narrative sort of way. Um, in fact, I wrote about that thesis in another book of mine called Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops. Um, I, I think that possibility has to be entertained. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not... Uh, I'm not philosophically opposed to the idea of E.T. or anything like that, but in my very cursory, admittedly very cursory examination of of UFOs and and various UFO stories, I have yet to be convinced by any of them that we must be compelled to conclude that a lot of these things are uh, extraterrestrial. I'm just just not yet convinced of that. Um, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I share I share your feelings on that. Back to the COVID discussion we had earlier. Have you seen any correlation with the vaccine and 5G rollout? Oh wow, <laughs> that's a that's a whopper. As a matter of fact, I I have um, go back to the initial weeks when the the plan scandemic was you know the, all the breaking news. Interestingly enough, if you look at those early outbreaks. And I'm thinking in particular in China, Iran, and Italy. Those outbreaks, and you, you have to do a little digging Wi-Fi on, on the Internet to find this stuff because, you know, they've, they've, they're long since passe in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the COVID narrative. But it was a few weeks after it started to break that you found these clusters of cases breaking out where there had already been a rollout of 5G. Joseph, how do you compare COVID vaccine passports compared to the long-standing requirement to have your kids get a vaccine to go to school or vaccines for yellow fever to travel? 
So, you know, in other words, why are we getting all upset about and worked up about vaccine passports? In many jurisdictions, your children must be vaccinated to go to school and you have to have a yellow vaccine to, to travel. Well, I'm getting worked up about it simply because of the nature of what these vaccines are. They're not, and I'm referring to the mRNA vaccines. These are not standard vaccines in any any traditional sense at all. These are highly experimental vaccines, and they admit as much. And this is the reason they've been exempted from you know the normal uh, long-term trials and so on. So I'm extremely skeptical in that instance. And number two, I, I simply don't buy the universality of, of vaccines. I grew up, uh, as many people in the United States did, in a state where this was not a requirement. Uh, in fact, the only vaccine I've ever had in my life is, is the polio vaccine, the Sabin vaccine when I was very young. Uh, I've not had uh, any vaccine ever since that. Um, so it's not a, an entirely universal experience. So, you know, I, I, I question that as well. I'm not worked up about the idea of vaccines. What I'm worked up is the idea of these vaccines being mandated with a passport that you, you have to be vaccinated against this COVID uh, to be able to shop and so on and so forth. Because right. I have yet to convince that, that we're even dealing with COVID. You know, look into, look into the actual... Uh, facts about the pathology of this thing. Have they actually proven that this is a virus and have they proven that this is the virus causing these effects? Right, right. And the and the passport isn't just for travel, as you as you right. say. It, it it is increasingly clear that there are a number of uh businesses right. that uh, are going to require you to 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 have a passport just to, you know, participate in um in normal activities. So yeah, that's this, that's very concerning you know, is, as well. This is, yeah, this is just plain old-fashioned tyranny. And, you know, I'm, I've got bad news for him. I ain't doing it. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to kill me. How does the shedding uh, from those who receive the vax affect others around them? Well, I'm aware of the stories, Richard, and I've been trying on my, on my website to follow this story as closely as I can and to post articles every now and then of, of things that I think are uh, trustworthy enough for people to, you know, to study. The shedding stuff is so new, I have not yet made up my mind about it. I haven't seen enough information to really make any conclusion. Now, I suspect strongly that this is the case because of the nature of the, like we said earlier, the nature of these mRNA vaccines. They are literally tweaking your body to produce this stuff. So in other words, you, you become vaccinated and you're actually much more possible to, to be shedding this stuff than not. But uh, as, as for the mechanism and the vector of how this works and why it's working in this fashion, I have not seen enough yet to, to make any conclusion about it. All right. I want to get back into... Um matters involving space and uh, specifically Mars. Uh, you, you posted a uh, blog, I'm not sure how long ago, it wasn't too long ago, uh, discussing some rather interesting formations that you've spotted on uh, on Mars. First, there, there was uh, some discussion about some ice uh, formations on the planet, and uh, that led you to look a little further, and, and what did you spy? 
Well, the, I think the blog that you're referring to is called Barsoom Shrooms. <laughs> Barsoom Mushrooms. Uh, right, Barsoom right. Well, there, were, there, there was another one called Meanwhile Back on Mars, More Perfectly Natural Formations. But yes, oh, yeah. the other one as well. Yeah. Well, the Barsoom Shrooms thing is, is this very odd set of pictures that appear to depict these bulbous-like things in the tracks of, of the rover itself that weren't there uh, when it, you know, it comes strolling on by. And then all of a sudden they are there in the tracks. And this led some scientists to conclude that are they looking at some form of fungus, you know, some form of mushroom that's growing on the surface. Now, it's, you know, it's a bit of fun, but they do raise an interesting point. How can you have natural rock formations, which is NASA's explanation, of course, suddenly appearing in the, in the tracks of the rover when they weren't there before? <laughs> you know? So right, right. it does look like something is growing, whether or not it's mushrooms or not, we don't know. But the other, uh, if I remember correctly, the other blog that you're referring to is about some pictures that were shown on Mars, and again, Richard, you've, you've got to look at these pictures and forget the narrative that, the, that anyone's trying to tell you, me or NASA or anyone else, just look with your eyes and see if you can find things that don't look like they should belong there. In other words, do they really look all that natural? And one of these things was NASA saying that, well, this is a bunch of ice crystals that we're looking at. Well, for one thing, if you look at the way ice forms and crystals, usually it forms in a hexagonal pattern, you know, snowflakes, for example. And none of these things look like any sort of natural ice crystal in that respect because a lot of these things are very rectilinear, <laughs> you know, 90-degree right, angles right. and so on and so forth. So, again, um, it's, it's very, very odd that you see so much of this stuff on the surface of Mars. And, you know, you know me. I think that these are actual artificial remains of some sort from somebody that lived up there long, long ago. I mean, you know, I've never hesitated to tell people what I think about Mars. But what's really interesting here, Richard, and I'm going to give your listeners a clue, this coming Tuesday I have a blog coming up on my website about some travel posters that NASA <laughs> that NASA came up with. And they have a bunch of travel posters for Enceladus and Europa, you know, all the Venus and so on and so forth. And you've got to admit that these travel posters have a bit of a sense of humor to them. But what's very interesting is that the travel poster for Mars at the top reads, visit all the historic sites. <laughs> and, and then at the bottom, it says, art, culture, architecture, agriculture. <laughs> Did you know that bee pollen contains almost all of the nutrients required by the human body to thrive? Get your two-month supply of bee pollen from GetTheTea.com. Bee pollen is a super nutritious way to boost your energy levels. It's referred to as nature's most complete health food. It's a natural immune booster. Bee pollen may help boost brain function. It may aid occasional seasonal allergies. Bee pollen, Mother Nature's immune support from GetTheTea.com. A 60-day supply costs just 
$31. Bee pollen should be avoided by anyone with an allergy to honey or bees. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've told you here. Do your research. Order your bee pollen from GetTheTea.com and use the code word UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your bee pollen from GetTheTea.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. So we were talking about Mars and a little bit about the secret space program. You mentioned Catherine uh, Austin Fitz uh, earlier and the, the missing trillions, something like $21 trillion missing from uh, the U.S. government. Um, so is it your belief that that much of this money is being funneled into the secret space program for what, the construction of deep space platforms and so forth? No, I, I do think that. And here's why. She and I kind of bumped into this problem from completely opposite ends. Um, and that's why, that's why we kind of connected because we both realized that there's a lot of money missing. And the way I view things, Richard, is money flows are like an electrical circuit. You put power in at the load end and it pops, pardon me, you put the power in at the power end and it pops out at the load end. And if not enough power is popping out at the load end, then it's going somewhere else. You know, you've either got to shorten the system and it's bleeding power somewhere, but that's the problem. So if we go back to, to let's say, the bailouts in 2008, they pumped an enormous amount of money into the system, or did they? Because the, the amounts of money should have shown up as massive inflation, and yet it hasn't. And now, you know, I just mentioned the 17 you know, or 14, whatever amount of quadrillions of dollars you want to go with here, that amount of money in, is still sloshing around in the system as derivatives. So Mr. Globaloney or Mr. Bankster has a huge problem, and I think that's one of the things behind this Great Reset stuff, because if you want to get away with a heist like that, take everybody to digital currency and keep yourselves behind a one-way mirror, and you can basically do whatever you wish. But my problem is, still, that money should be showing up somewhere, somehow, and yet it's not. So I've actually speculated um, that somehow this money may actually be going off-world. How? I don't know. But I do find it very, very interesting to ponder the fact that the European nations, Germany in particular, are talking about opening up 4G and 5G networks on the moon, you know, and putting up the satellite network to make that work, and so on and so forth. So my question is, who are we doing commerce with up there? Mm, a breakaway civilization. Back? Yeah, exactly. That's that's my thinking. And somehow they, they need this system to work in order to carry out and conduct the commerce that may already be involved in it. And, and I know that sounds wild and woolly, but if you stop and think about it, not so much, especially if they're talking about going out and mining asteroids. Right, right. Uh, so where are the whistleblowers? We had um, McKinnon, I guess. It was. was it McKinnon in Great Britain who uh, yep. hacked into the Pentagon computers and found evidence of, of a secret space program and so forth? And, and uh, uh, we have, you know, from time to time we hear about these 
seemingly crazy stories. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for people to believe them. But I just find them just too outlandish. Someone like, you know, Captain Randy Kramer, who claims that he was, uh, you know, a soldier on Mars and so forth. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe there's some credibility there. But uh, uh, um, but where are the whistleblowers, the the the, the credible whistleblowers um, that are the, that that can tell us about these deep space platforms, deep space colonies seek, uh, and this breakaway civilization? Richard. I, I'm glad you said that because I've wondered the same thing. We've got whistleblowers in every other field, but the ones here are always telling some crazy yarn. And that makes me wonder what, to what lengths then are they willing to go in order to keep all this stuff secret if indeed the these so-called whistleblowers that are telling their crazy yarns are coming up with such craziness in order to keep people from really really considering the possibility that we may have something out there. Now, you mentioned Gary McKinnon. McKinnon claimed to have hacked into the Department of Defense and discovered an entire secret space fleet with the names of the captains and the names of the ships and so on. And that sounds like yet another crazy yarn, except if you go back and read Ronald Reagan's memoirs, he mentions in the memoirs, I think it was around 1986-87, that he had been told by the Pentagon that the United States had a space lift capacity at that time of 300 people. In other words, it could move 300 people in space at that time. Well, if you look at the state of the space shuttle fleet at that time, we were at best perhaps capable of moving 40 at best. So wow. in other words, either Reagan is telling, letting something out that he shouldn't have let out and telling us the truth, or he's letting out a bit of disinformation to make you know Soviet Russia, Communist China think twice, one of the two. Now, I happen to think he probably was letting out something genuine. Uh, because I suspect that the censors, you know, for whatever reason, weren't paying too much attention to Ronnie at that point because he was a little, you know, he was a little bit like, like Biden at that point in time. But um, I, I, I suspect that there we had a little whistleblower moment. Interesting, interesting, and that's thirty. 34 years ago. I mean, (laughs) what what capabilities do they have now? Uh, Solar Warden wants your take on Bob Lazar and his account of uh, Area 51. I have always uh, said, Solar Warden, that I'm very suspicious of that whole narrative, and here's why. Lazar claims to have taken samples of an element that he claims at S-4 was used to propel the saucers that he claims to see, or to have seen. And the element was Unum Pentium, element 115, all right? And then later on, his stories elaborated by uh, John Lear that they had uh, taken some of this element 115 and kept it in Lazar's home for about half an hour before they did something else with it. Now, here's my problem with that story. If you go to any standard physics reference book, element 115 has indeed been synthesized. 
uh, I believe it was first synthesized in, in Darmstadt, Germany, sometime after Lazar's story. And it's one of those heavy elements that are beyond the transuranic element series where the half-life of the element becomes longer and the element becomes more stable. But the problem is the half-life is still nowhere near long enough for anybody to be able to keep a sample of it for half an hour. <laughs> That's my mm. problem with Bob Lazar. Disinformation officer, or a dis- disinformation agent, rather. Do you suspect? Yeah, yeah that's what I suspect, yes. So I uh, interviewed a couple of, uh, there's, a, there's an organization of former uh, people who worked at either Wright Pad or uh, Groom Lake or Area 51. They're called the Roadrunners. And, uh, of course, they would neither confirm or deny that they worked at Area 51 but they worked in the spy plane program and so forth. And uh, they were adamant that the whole UFO uh, narrative was concocted in order to throw people off of what was really happening at Area 51. In other words, you know, that we, we, we've, we've had this technology for a very long time. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't require back engineering crashed vehicles from extraterrestrials. We're doing this. It's ours. What are your thoughts? Well, I tend to agree with that. Um, you've got to go back to the early period of the U-2 flights. Uh, that's when I, I believe that the American intelligence community began to push this idea that these lights that we're seeing traveling super fast in the sky are extraterrestrial as a deflection from technology that they wanted to keep secret. Uh, so I, I tend to agree with that. But the other thing is that we have to take into consideration statements of people like Ben Rich, the former head of of the Lockheed Skunk Works. Toward the end of his life, he allegedly made statements to the effect, well, you know, we found an error in the equations, and now we can take E.T. home, and so on and so forth. And these claims are there. I happen to think that if you study the people involved in the American black projects research world in this advanced aeronautic technology you know people like benridge people like thomas townsend brown and so on and so forth and do a little digging into what they were thinking in brown's case way back in the 1920s it's clear that there is a a pattern of thought of development of conceptualization of, of basic things in physics that we would regard today as as science fiction. But these were very serious people, and they were thinking these things, and they were writing about them. So, you know, with enough money and with enough uh, commitment for a long-term project, could they have pulled some of these things off? I think probably the answer is yes. I want to go back to um, one of your blogs, recent blogs on GizaDeathStar.com, and it's, it's entitled The Physiology of Precognition. And... Um, as you point out, it's a it's a wild article uh, that I guess someone shared with you, and it, it has to do with these scientists who have discovered that the heart and brain can respond to future events, obviously, before they happen. Tell me more. Well, I find that very interesting because it, it seems to present a physiological case that, that the structure of the brain and the heart, and, and they're very, very similar, somehow represent or mirror the the fabric of the universe 
And the reason I find that very interesting is you can go online and look at pictures of galactic clusters and what they think are the plasma strands that connect them and then compare those pictures to actual neural mapping of neurons in the brain, and they're remarkably similar. Yes. And this is, this is not the only case that we have where macrocosmic structures, you know, very large structures, mirror very small structures, because I, I pointed out in the Cosmic War that if you look at the structures, the spiral structures of galaxies, and then compare them to pictures of plasmas generated in the laboratory, again, you're seeing some remarkable correspondence. So I suspect that there is or may be a physiological basis to what we ordinarily call precognition, simply because the way that our, our, our brains are designed, they tap into that, that lattice work of the universe. And I've always viewed that, Richard, as not so much a field of energy, but a field of information. And Interesting. Yeah, once you kind of latch onto that idea, then it becomes possible to consider these things may not be as paranormal as as we've been told. They may be entirely natural, which I think is probably the case. So let me just desc- <clears throat> describe the uh, this experiment. Mm-hmm. As part of the experiment in physiological responses to future events, participants were made to sit at a computer screen and then were shown pictures of either a calming or emotion-evocative nature. And this procedure was then repeated. The pictures remained on the screen for three seconds, and in every run, the pictures were presented in randomized order. The results were astounding. The results of the experiment were uh, fascinating, to say the least. The participants' brains and hearts responded to information about the emotional quality of the pictures before the computer flashed them. This means the heart and brain were both responding to future events. The results indicated the responses happened on average 4.8 seconds before the computer selected the pictures. Why isn't this front page news? Well, I think, again, Richard, it's because we, at least publicly, science is loath to go beyond the materialistic paradigm. But yet, when you, when you look at all of the stuff going on in physics, you know, just look at the stuff that went on in the Soviet Union, of all places, that supposedly is dedicated, you know, to atheistic materialism, and yet they're doing these extraordinary experiments in, in what we would call paranormal, and documenting these types of abilities, telekinesis, uh, and so on and so forth, and, and even precognition in some cases. So I think I think it's such a huge challenge to a scientist brought up in a materialistic paradigm that they just don't even want to go there, and yet you know there it is. So I think I think if you really look at things, we're not only in a big paradigm shift, you know, with COVID and with great resets and so on and so forth. The other reason I think that Mr. Globaloni is in such a hurry is they realize that materialistic paradigm might be breaking down and breaking down big time. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, can you give me, I don't know, an example? What do you mean it's breaking down? Like, well, what, what you, is a, what? Go ahead. And consider, stop and consider the implications of that experiment. If you have a a natural inbuilt ability 
so for some sort of precognition. And if that ability can be tweaked, then all of your materialistic measures to control the thought, the emotion, and so on of humanity are going to go right out the window. Because that ability is, is coming, as I, as I suggested, not so much from within the structure of the brain or the heart, but rather those things are, are transducers of information in the field at large, in other words, in the universe at large. So you're never going to be able to turn it off. And it's, it's going to be able to seep in somehow. All you can do at best, perhaps, is jam the signal, and maybe that's what they're up to. You know, maybe that's why they're in such a hurry. But that's, that's my basic speculation as of this moment as to why I think this might be more about things that they're afraid of happening, and we've got to move and implement our control mechanisms quickly or we're going to lose it. So uh, are, you, are we talking about here uh, this, a divine connection that, that we have? I think so, yes, you know, um, made in the image and likeness of God. And if, if that be so, then that means that there is some sort of intimate connection between humanity and the structure of the universe at large. You know, this is a very ancient idea. I mean, it's not new with me. Uh, you can go back and read it in, in the ancient Greek philosophers, the idea that man is a microcosm of, of the whole universe in some form or fashion. So it's not really all that new of an idea. What I'm suggesting is is that science seems to be in fits and starts getting back to that idea or maybe being dragged back to that idea, kicking and screaming all the way. You know? but, but that's what I think might be going on here. Right. And uh, you point out in this blog, you know, that a number of people have made the comment with this mRNA vaccine, mm -hmm. they've killed God. Yes, that's right. A topic I know that's near and dear to your heart, and that's Antarctica. Uh, Buzz Aldrin said he saw absolute evil when he was down in Antarctica. Did he actually say that? Is that true? Well, I have heard that he did. Now, I've also heard that there are people that dispute that that was genuine. But whether he did say it or didn't say it, I do know that he did say prior to getting on the plane that would take him to Antarctica, we're off to the launch pad. Now, that's a strange statement. Does he mean by launch pad the airplane that's going to take him to Antarctica? Or does he mean that Antarctica is some sort of launch pad? <laughs> you know, this is, right, right. this is the question that hovers over the, his remarks. But what I find interesting is that something is going on down there, and we are not being told what it is. Because, you know, I've pointed out over and over, Richard, that there is a very strange list of people associated with that place. We've got Buzz Aldrin, John Kerry, who interrupts a diplomatic junket in 2016 during one of the most hotly contested elections in American history to go to Antarctica, and we're told that he, the reason he did that is because he wanted to look at global climate change up close and firsthand. Now, I'm sorry, I'm... You know, this is the Secretary of State. He can call any number of assistants at his office in, in Washington, D.C., and get all the data that he would ever need about global warming, climate change, and so on and so forth. So something's going on there. Then you have Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump. You have uh, some of the British royals going to Antarctica. You've got King Juan Carlos going down to Antarctica. Uh, you've got... 
you've got, of all people, uh, Herman Goering sponsoring that Nazi expedition down there. And again, you know, Herman Goering is not sponsoring a science, uh, science fair expedition, and he's not the type of individual even to be remotely interested in sponsoring expeditions to go down there and get whale oil and a bunch of other lubricants. You know, he can turn that over to any assistant that he wants. But when you look at the strange number of people involved with the place, it adds up to quite a list. And the question is, why the list of what's going on down there? And crazy as it sounds, I think that John Kerry might be the clue. He he went down there on a diplomatic junket, so I'm thinking, well, is he conducting diplomacy there? And if so, with who? And why go there? Well, one reason you would go there is it's pretty neutral, and it's absolutely so strictly controlled as to who can get in and get out of there that if you're wanting to conduct a secret round of diplomacy with whomever, that's where you'd do it. So I, I do suspect that there is something going on, but as for Buzz Aldrin's statement about uh, what he saw was absolute evil. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. But if it if he did say it, then it's a huge clue. Negotiation, diplomatic negotiations with whom? Are we talking about uh, the Nazi international? It could be anybody. Um, now, I'm not one of those, please let me clear the record, I'm not one of those that believes that the Nazis had a secret UFO base or a secret submarine pen or anything of the sort in in Antarctica during the war for the plain and simple reason that it would have been logistically a nightmare for the Germans to have supplied anything like that, much less, you know, a much more capable naval power like Great Britain or the United States. It just would have been a logistical nightmare. But... That said, you do have that group of people in southern Argentina at that time. You, you certainly have the ability to, to cloak activities and, and things of that sort. It's either that or someone else is down there, Richard, and, and you know someone else could be, could be anybody from under the earth or off planet. Who knows? I don't. Right, right. There's also rumors that there is a an enormous craft that is emerging from the melting ice down there, and, and uh, this is what people are going to have a look at. What have you heard on that? Uh, well, I've score? heard that. You know, that was that was actually the 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 theme of of the uh, first X Files movie that there was actually an enormous craft buried in the ice. But you know, I've heard that. I don't know if that's true or not. But by the same token, Richard. Uh, if a few years ago there were all of these people on the internet claiming to find very very curious things that had apparently been blotted out of Google Earth but that you could find if you knew how to look for them because they were hiding these files within other files on Google Earth or so the story went and some of the pictures that they were producing were of gigantic fossilized remains or secret bases and so on and so forth. I don't know if any of that's true, but it's there. You know, I'm just adding a little bit more data to your question. I I don't have any uh, conclusion one way or another about it. But very obviously, there is something going on down there, and, and very obviously they are not talking about it. So as you cover these stories, whether we're talking about uh, COVID or the Great Reset or the missing trillions or, you know, the manipulation in the gold uh, market and disappearing gold and, and so forth, are you are you uh, fearful for our future, our immediate future, or are you um, 
I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you think that the good guys will win out in the end? Well, for the short term, I'm 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 very skeptical and and very anxious. I, I will be blunt and say that. But for the long term, no, I'm not fearful because what Mr. Globaloni or whoever's up to all of this nonsense is really trying to create is an inhuman and anti-human uh, future. And ultimately, barring any sort of, of external intervention, ultimately, humanity always throws that stuff off somehow. So in that sense, I'm optimistic, because when you look at Mr. Globaloni, the Klaus Schwabs, and so on of the world, uh, what they're trying to implement and put into place is, is quite simply anti-human. And I think this is what's scaring them and why they're moving so fast right now, because people are waking up and seeing just how inhuman it really is. Uh, GizaDeathStar.com. From time to time, you have uh, some of these vid chats on uh, on the YouTube channel. Do you have any coming up? Uh, I've got one coming up next week. Now, people should know that the vid chats are for members only, for paying members of the website. But uh, I do spend a lot of time... Uh, with those vid chats, in other words, these are not these are not your uh, one-hour things. These are these are long and involved, and we get into some pretty interesting types of philosophical discussions in these things. But yeah, that, I have another one coming up next week, and I usually have uh, Richard about three a month. All right. Do you want to tease what this one's uh, this one is about coming up uh, next well, week? I never know what they're about because people submit me questions. And ah. So, you know, I, I know what they're about. They're going to be about about a day beforehand. So, so I never know what they're thinking, you know, and trust me, they I have a really good group of people that are, are really good dot connectors and thinkers, but I never know what they're about. Oh, I see. Okay. And so, again, people can register at Giza or GizaDeathStar.com? Right, right. All right. And uh, just very quickly, tell us a little bit more about the Tower of Babel moment, uh, your latest well, that uh, was suggested by a comment made in a series of lectures back in the 1970s, believe it or not, by Leonard Bernstein. He called it the Tower of Babel moment of history. But basically, what I do in the book is I go through the biblical story and then some other texts that recount the story and, and look, at the, look at the story from the standpoint of the politics involved, if, if that makes any sense. Sure. All right. So, uh, available at Amazon, I'm guessing? Uh, no, that's available on Lulu. Ah, all right. The Tower of Babel moment. Well, Joseph, thank you uh, so much for being uh, so generous with your time. It's been too long, and thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you very much, Richard, for having me back. I... A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>